Hello, YouTube, and welcome to today's episode where I've got a guest with me. And I, I forgot to ask before we started as well, the correct, correct pronunciation of your surname. Is it Ryrie or Riri? Because right the first time, Ryrie. Ryrie, okay. So I, I live with Alec Ryrie. Um, and you're you're a lecturer at Durham University over here in the UK. Um, and you've also got, a, how, how I know about you is through a series of um, lectures and talks that you've done at Gresham College, which I think is in London. Um, so they're like public talks about hi the history of Christianity, its interaction with certain kind of flashpoint historical events. And today we're going to be talking about Protestantism. Um, do you want to say anything else about your background before we get started? No, that's, that's, that's good. Yeah, I mean, there's the, um, I should just put in a plug for the wider things that Gresham College do. They do a, you know, a whole series of, of free public lectures online and in person on a, on a massive range of subjects. Um, and I've got a whole other um, six lecture series with them coming up this year. Awesome. Um, so that's the first question then for the topic today is what is a Protestant? Um, so, it, you know, sort of defining our terms. And I guess, I mean, Maybe that question is a bit more complicated, and we're going to talk about some of the complexities of different denominations and historical definitions and things. But what, what's a good working definition, maybe, to get us started uh, along this journey? I, it's a, a deceptively um, difficult question um, because you know the the, the normal working definition, which is you know, broadly what I tried to to, to, to go with in the. Um, in the book on the history of Protestantism I wrote a few years ago, um, is the kind of genealogical one. So we're talking about a, a branch of Christianity that derives from the the great split in Western Christendom that starts in the early 16th century, which we call the Reformation. That term is problematic too, but okay. let's go with it. Um, and for reasons of you know historical accident that we can go into the collective term that gets applied to all of the different groups that split off from um the roman catholic church following that set of of, of schism is protestant and that comes to be has come to be used as an umbrella term for a very wide variety of, of, of different Christian movements. There are kind of two or three big denominational families. There's Lutherans, um, Calvinists of many kinds, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, what, what have you. There's the kind of strange subset of this, which come to be known as Anglicans and have produced themselves many been also in Methodists ultimately come out of that stable. And then there's a great many others as well. Um, and a lot of people within those families will argue about who counts as really a Protestant and who doesn't. And there's, there'll be a lot of arguments about, okay, some groups have gone so far off in some particular direction that they no longer really count as part of the family. Um, Anyone My, using incense? I like incense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I just you know, trespassed on one of these problems by putting Anglicans within that family. Actually, I've got a problem with the word Anglican too, but maybe let's not go there today. Um, there are a lot of Anglicans who are uneasy about claiming that Protestant heritage. For themselves even though most of the rest of the world sees them that way um i'm just suspicious of any of these attempts to draw kind of clear doctrinal lines because that that those efforts are usually undertaken with some kind of agenda in view if not actively maliciously as a way of trying to exclude people and decide you know i'm in and you're out right sure i i want to take really a kind of genealogical view and say that there's a family resemblance between these the, you know these these different groups and therefore that you've got to be inclusive i mean families don't necessarily get on um they're perfectly capable of having you know any number of black sheep and of, of, of excluding and, and and anathematizing each other but nevertheless they they remain 
at a profound level related and collect, connected to each other. So as I've defined it, Protestantism is a, a movement that includes, you know, as we get into the modern world, a great many groups that are sometimes classed as sects. Um, and I think absolutely includes Pentecostalism um, that's, that's become such a, a huge phenomenon in the, in the 20th century. I mean, I actually think Pentecostalism is, is smack in the middle of the Protestant tradition and, and has very deep roots with it. Um, the point where even I find myself running up against limits is with Mormonism, which okay. clearly comes out of a Protestant heritage, but has gone in such a different direction and has so many really distinctive elements to it that I think it's, it does a disservice both to Protestants and to Mormons to describe them as, as, as essentially part of the same movement. I think Mormonism is, is so, it, it, I, I think it amounts to a new religion. It's as distinct from um, from Protestantism and from historic Christianity as Christianity is from Judaism. Yeah, I I um I think I'm sympathetic with that view, but I do have two I have an ex-Mormon friend and a current Mormon friend, and both of them would definite would would want to have one of them describe themselves as having been a Christian at that time, and the other one would say they are a Christian. So I don't I maybe I should have I, I should talk to them about um you know their their views on that at some point. So go go, go Sorry, uh, did, was there something else you wanted to say? Yeah, no, I know. I, I, I guess I would distinguish between Mormonism's wish to claim the, the, the identity of Christian for itself, which is clearly part of Mormon identity. You know, it's there in the title of the church. Um, you know, the, 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 you know, Christ is at the center of it. Um, and, you know, that's legitimate in its own terms but i think really what we're talking about is a kind of a dispute over what christianity is yeah right um i think applying the word protestant to them is is really a bit of a stretch so um going back then to the the sort of split from catholicism which is the historical event which you said kind of broadly or all, all of these things that come under protestantism share in common is this kind of um genealogical or etymological kind of hi historical route um mm -hmm. well what I, I mean first what is what is that event um why does it happen what what kind of leads up to it what's the story there uh, okay well i mean there's a storybook answer to that, which is that on the 31st of October um, 1517, Martin Luther um, went and nailed 95 theses to the door of the castle church in, in Wittenberg, and that started the Reformation. Um, and I mean, that's not true. Um, that it, it's most unlikely that any theses were actually affixed to the door of the castle church. Um, if it did happen, Luther almost certainly wouldn't have done it himself. Right. Um, but it is true that Martin Luther, who is at that date um, a, an up-and-coming theologian who's become quite prominent within the Augustinian order of monks within Germany, um, and has a, a, you know, a fairly distinguished academic position at a new, a kind of scrappy new university at, at Wittenberg in Saxony. Um, so, you know, he's not exactly a, a, a national or international figure, but he's not nobody either. Um, decides that he wants to make a protest against um, the fundraising activity that's going on by some Dominican friars around him. He doesn't realize that this has actually been sponsored by his own archbishop. Okay. Um, uh, and it's, it's a program which he sees as, as being theologically as well as ethically corrupt. And those, I mean, those, those two are connected for them. Um, and it's the kind of, you know, his, his, you know, drawing up these theses to protest against it is a kind of perfectly normal academic maneuver. He's saying, look, there's a problem here. We should, 
you know, hand it to the theologians, bring it back into the academy, and we can sort it out. Um, but he has stepped on some sensitive issues. I mean, not least he's threatening people's income stream. Um, right. And he's also done it in an inflammatory way. He's discovering already, or just beginning to discover, that he's got a real knack for rabble-rousing rhetoric, for couching his ideas in 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 such a way as to be pouring petrol um, and, right. and and chucking matches around. Um, and so when these feces, I mean feces, makes them sound huge. They're like bullet points, you know, right? Kind of little sort of one or one or two sentence kind of assertions for discussion. Um, like if, if the Pope have, can forgive all the sins, then why doesn't he just do it without us? Like that sort of thing. Exactly. Um, yeah, that's one of them. Um, and, and you know, the, uh, he he you know, has, has ninety-five of these things. Absolutely standard form of academic argument. There aren't always ninety-five, um, but you know, you just you know, make make the points you want to make. Um, somebody else picks them up, apparently without his knowledge, translates them into German. Of course, originally it's in Latin because it's all part of academic debate. They get printed and suddenly the whole thing catches fire. Um, there's a, a, a great deal of interest in what he's doing. He is told firmly by the church authorities to back down. And of course, most people under those circumstances would, but Luther turns out, as well as being an effective rabble rouser, to be an unusually stubborn human being. Right. Um, and he's also in a, a, you know, a, a particular moment, a whole series of factors come together to mean that of all the, the, the points of tension that the later medieval church had been enduring this one happens in just such a way in just such a time and place as to to make it impossible for for it to be well maybe not impossible but it you know, it, it, it as it plays out it is not actually effectively clamped down right it's a moment of political um hiatus in in Germany, the, the, the Holy Roman Emperor, the you know, so sovereign of the whole of Germany, is, is at the point of death. There's going to be an election for a new emperor. One of the electors, one of the seven electors, is going to choose the new emperor. Um, just so happens to be the founder and patron of Wittenberg University. So it's a bad time for anybody to start a fight over one of his star professors. Right. Um, you've got this new technology of printing with movable type, which has been around for half a century or so, and has is, is really starting to spread. Luther finds himself being able to use this to reach a mass audience, bypass the normal kind of polite indoors modes of theological discourse in a way that really nobody has quite managed to do before. He, he, he stumbles into this. And he's picking up on a, a, a series of rumbling discontents with the, the ecclesiastical establishment, which had been around for you know, a few decades. Some aspects of it coming to a head, um, the so-called Renaissance humanists questioning a lot of what they see as the superstition and corruption associated with the, with the church. Is that pe that's people like Erasmus and Petrarch and yeah, I mean those are those are a couple of centuries apart. But Erasmus, okay. who's, who's, who's Luther's contemporary, um, is you know initially sees Luther as as part of this same movement, right? Um, and only you know it takes a surprisingly long time, you know, a, a, a few years for it really to become clear that the kind of critique Luther is making is, is greater than just wanting to, to, to tidy the church up around the edges and deal with some, some superstition and corruption and turn towards a more sort of refined inner piety, but that he really is advancing a profound theological critique, which um, 
if you take it to its fullest logical extent, and often Luther is wary about following through his arguments fully, is going to sweep away much of the the structure of the of of, of the church as it had as it had been known. Right. It means that that hierarchies, priests, sacraments, much of the kind of day-to-day business of of, of of Christianity starts to look like it plays a supporting role in the Christian life at best. It may even be unnecessary or actively an obstacle. Um, you know, Luther's approach famously is is summed up as as sola fide, faith alone, and it's that that intense and immediate relationship with God in Christ that he wants to pursue, which he sees as as marginalizing everything else. Mm. So, I mean, you know, the, 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 one of the great questions about the Reformation, you know, to what extent is it about Luther or to what extent was he just the person who was in the right place at right. the right time? Um, and obviously there's no definitive answer to that because we don't know what would have happened. My sense is that there was certainly scope for some major movement of of reform or reworking of the of the church's structure challenge to the you know the the really deep-seated problems of the papacy particularly as an institution as it existed in that in that period um but the distinctive contribution that luther makes is to find a way of doing this which is based on a really radical and persuasive theological critique if it wasn't for that then it might have been possible to hold the whole church together to avoid the schism because you know much of the mood of these movements is there's a there's a very wide appeal to it but the radicalism of luther's theological critique is simply unacceptable to to to, to a lot of his a lot of his contemporaries so you what, could imagine that there, there could have been a, a sort of a, a, a softer, more house-trained version of, right. the, of the Reformation. On the other hand, you know, Dom McCulloch in his, his book on the Reformation says, you know, the old church is very strong, and if it's to destroy something strong, you need something strong in return. Right. Um, and it's the 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 power, the the kind of corrosive nature of Luther's idea, which is like acid poured onto the the, the, the structure of the old church. Mm-hmm. It eats away at it and you know cuts through all its tangles and and and, and complexities. Well, were there were there many before before this point were there many um people with similar theologies? I mean I'm aware of like uh, Jan Hus who I think was was burnt a, a bit before and also I hear of um like the Waldensians um i i don't know yeah how how many people kind of came to similar conclusions as luther beforehand yeah i mean it's 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 a really good point you've got this series of dissident or, or reforming movements through the, the the later middle ages and i mean you know stretching stretching way back you know Haas is is almost exactly a century before luther okay. um the waldensians are, are you know are are 12th century origin um you've got um, the the so-called Lollards, um, you know, who looked to, to John Wycliffe in England in the late 14th century, um, he's a significant influence on Haas as well. Um, so there are this whole series of movements, and many of them are pretty similar. They're they're looking for a, a piety which empowers lay people, which wants to put the Bible into to as many people's hands. As, as possible is opposed to um, clerical privileges and you know corruption and all those those sorts of questions. None of them really take off. The partial exception to that is the Hussites, who do do you know become a substantial movement within Bohemia, within what's now the Czech Republic, but it stays confined to that that particular region. And you could argue that that's because none of them have got the political factors coalescing as Luther does. None of them have got access to the printing press. Um, and I mean, that is significant. 
also none of them have got a theological critique of quite really of anything like Luther's right. clarity or or radicalism. They're talking about structural change, about empowering lay people. They're not talking about an entirely rebased relationship with God based on faith alone, which can provide a a, a really deep and consistent ideological basis for for, for, for sweeping aside the structures of the church. So I, I know it's unfashionable to see theology as a, a driving force in major historical events. I do think when you're talking about the Protestant Reformation, it's hard to get away from the fact that without Luther, the theological breakthroughs that he makes and the ways in which he is able to communicate them and to pick them up, to, to use them to pick up and crystallize a whole range of the ideas that are out there in the culture at the time. Right. Without that, hard to see it happen. So, so then what happens, um, you know, how, how are Luther's ideas received by um, the Catholic Church? How do, how do they respond to that? And then how do we kind of get the, the resulting movement that ends up sort of rejecting Catholicism outright and uh, uh, leading in to um, political schisms, wars, and so forth. And then, and how does this tie in with what's going on in other geographical locations as well? Like when exactly? Yeah, do other yeah. movements? Yeah, I, I, I mean that's a, that's that's a big set of questions. Sure. Um, so, you know, you, you yeah, might want to keep yeah. me on a short leash here. Um, okay. Um, but it's worth remembering that the outcome that we get in which you know, we, we, we get a schism that you can depict on a map that parts of, of Europe adopt this new movement, let's call it Protestant, um, and parts remain, you know, re re remain loyal to, in communion with the, the, the papacy and what we then have mm. to start calling the Roman Catholic Church. Right. That is not an obvious outcome. Um, it's in fact it's the bizarre way for this this crisis to play out. Um, Luther's aim is not to go into schism, but to reform the church from within. And the expectations of his early supporters are either that they will sweep everything before them, or that they will be completely wiped out. You know, Luther himself, who has a, a kind of apocalyptic lugubriousness to him, you know, expect that, that, that this will fail and that he'll become a martyr. Right. Or in some moods, he yeah. expects that. Um, there, there's a point in the early 1520s, so, you know, in the few years after the movement begins, when it really seems in Germany as if it's sweeping everything before, as if, as, as, as if this is becoming an orthodoxy. Right. Um, a, a, around which, you know, the whole of, of Germany, the whole of Central Europe might coalesce. And you've also got a lot of people in, in Italy, in France, elsewhere, who may not want to sign up to everything that Luther said. It's already pretty clear that Luther is quite a wild guy and is, is, is capable of, of, of saying things without really fully thinking them through, but are profoundly impressed by some of the, the core of his ideas and find the, the theological power of what he's saying difficult to, to reject outright. So it really does look as if some kind of thoroughgoing reform, which in, of, of, of the, the whole church, of the Catholic church, which incorporates Luther's insights might be possible. Then in Germany, you get this great crisis, the, the rebellion in, um, in 1524 to 25, the so-called Peasants' War, uh, you know, the, the biggest mass rebellion in European history before the French Revolution, right. um, in which some of the more radical voices who were come out of Luther's movement are associated with. Luther himself denounces all this um, quite late in the day. 
um, but it forces a decision. Um, and for most of the German cities and princes, the decision is to say, no, enough of this craziness. We're going to run back to orthodoxy. There's a significant minority who say, no, that, that ship has sailed. We can't go back all the way back there. And so we're going to go with Luther rather than with the crazy people. We're going to take Luther himself out as a kind of middle course. Right. Um, but that's the point at which a, a, a you know really comprehensive movement for reform starts to look impossible. But I mean that's what we say with hindsight. Right through the the 1530s into the early 1540s, there are still very serious people who are saying, no, we can do this. We can find a way of, of synthesizing the best of Luther's ideas. Um, the Holy Roman Emperor himself, Charles V, you know, who's, you know, is, a, is a loyal son of the Roman Catholic Church, is very keen to try to push some kind of compromise deal through. And he sponsors this great summit conference, which meets right. in Regensburg in 1541, um, which comes achingly close to, to striking some sort of deal. And even after that fails, through the 1540s into the 1550s, you've got a, a, a series of very high profile people like um, uh, Archbishop Elector von Wied of Cologne um, or Archbishop Hamilton of St. Andrews, the, um, the primate of the Scottish Church. Um, and on the Protestant side, people like um, Archbishop Cranmer in, in, in England who are trying to keep in touch with each other, think about what they can right. do, how, how, how some sort of comprehensive deal could be synthesized to avoid this catastrophe of schism, of, of, right. of permanently breaking the church into rival regional denominations. And of course, that's the catastrophe as it, as, as it eventually unfolds. And it is you know the situation that everybody wanted to avoid um and it is regarded as a disaster one of the reasons why you then have a a century of of, of religious warfare is because everybody regards this situation of geographical schism as intolerable um but of course once you've decided that compromise is impossible the the only way to resolve it is conquest. Right. So, so some of the things. Um, I mean, we've skipped over some of the. I don't know. I don't. I don't want to say it in like a derogatory way because I don't mean it that way. But like the the classic kind of story of the Reformation, you know, with like um, the the Diet of Worms and uh, Luther turning up. Here, you know, here I stand. I can do no other. And then go, mm -hmm. going outside, being. Um, I. I don't know that it happens exactly like that because I always remember it from a Martin Luther film I watched. But um, you know, like being being kidnapped and uh, going to a castle, translating the Bible and all that. But I, that, I think that's pretty much like like it's shown. I, and but the the thing I want I want to go on to then is um, so th th some other groups of reformers, the the Calvinists, for example. Um, where do they come from? Then is it how do they do they spring up? Is it just kind of um, you know, is it off the back of, of the stuff that Luther's done and that's kind of caused political upheaval? Is it a similar story where there's people who are in kind of monasteries but have different theological ideas and then they end up just kind of working those ideas out differently? How, how does Calvinism come about? Um, obviously, one individual, John Calvin, is going to be significant in that story, but yeah. I, he, he is, but he plays a different role in, in Calvinism than Luther does in, in Lutheranism because... Right. Calvin is eight years old when Luther publishes his 95 Theses. You know, he's, okay. he is a, a second generation figure um, in, in the Reformation. And the movement that we call Calvinism, and it's a problematic term, partly for that reason, um, is always a much more collective movement than the, 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 what Luther does. It's often portrayed as if you know Lutheranism is is the more kind of moderate version and Calvinism the more extreme of of, of, of Protestantism 
and there are some dimensions in, in which that's so i think it's also really really misleading um certainly lutherans themselves would regard uh, lutherans would say that they themselves are the the more kind of clear and purebred version of of, of of protestant theology whereas calvinism has, has kind of corrupted itself with a, a kind of textualism and rationalism um that that strays back towards um you know, towards Erasmus and those kinds of Renaissance humanist ideas. This is a movement that comes out of a, a very different political milieu, out of Switzerland, um, the, 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 the republics, the independent little republics of, that, have, that formed the Swiss Confederation, and out of the big city-states of southern Germany, places like Strasbourg. Um, the key figure in starting it is a man named Huldrich Zwingli, um, who's uh, a Swiss who's become the, the city preacher of Zurich. Zwingli claimed to have reached his theology of justification, um, of, of faith alone, um, independently of Luther. Um, that seems implausible given how similar they are and how close the time frame is um we'll know more when bruce gordon brings his book out book on Zwingli, oh, okay. out, which is, 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 is just about to appear and we're, we're, we're all kind of waiting on tenterhooks for this. okay um but I, yeah i think the in, until bruce proves me wrong um the assumption is that you know even if we thought he got there independently you know he's, he's nevertheless affected by 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 luther's luther's movement um but it is clear that from the very beginning um you know within a few months you have this distinct form of this you know anti-papal anti-hierarchical um faith-based, radically simplifying revolution. Um, and everybody can see that these two movements ought to be allies, that they agree on 95% of what they're, mm. what they're doing. And everybody can see that getting over the, those, that last 5% is going to be phenomenally difficult. Um, there's a, you know, a series of specific issues that they disagree about, of which the most profound is the is the nature of the, the Eucharist and precisely what happens to the to the, the bread and wine that are consecrated um, in, in, in the Holy Communion. Um, but in some ways those specific issues are only symptoms of the the deeper disagreement between them, the pattern of thought that they that they each have mm. um, in which the the, the the reformed, as we call the, the reformed of the capital R, is, what, is, is the best umbrella term for this Zwinglian Calvinist movement, um, are more law-based, more structured. They're more they're, they're interested in a, in that kind of thoroughgoing reform, re-legislating what what the Christian life should be like. Luther, who regards law as something that Christians ought to rise above entirely, he wants to replace law with gospel and all that. Right. Um, sees that whole approach as as fundamentally misguided, as as symptomatic of what's wrong with all of them. Um, there is this famous summit conference between Luther and Zwingli at, um, at the German city of Marburg in 1529, where the political protectors that both men have by then acquired are desperately trying to get them to reach an agreement because you know they're in a very exposed position and their two main leaders you know can't sit in the same room as each other you know this is bad um so this whole thing is is carefully stage managed and it just falls apart because right. you know neither luther or zwingli can be pushed to 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 do this um it's a, a contest between you know Zwingli's condescension in which he's kind of you know saying to Luther look don't you realize that you're still sunk in superstition and that you need to embrace the clarity and purity of my vision 
um, uh, and the outrage of, of uh, that, that, that Luther has at the way that, as he sees it, Zwingli is just tearing up scripture to make it say what he thinks it ought to say. Um, Calvin, who is a French lawyer, who comes along, uh, you know, lawyer, again, the, the, that law element is important, um, comes along in the next generation as this bright young man, uh, <laughs> exceptionally bright young man, mm. uh, who thinks he can solve this um, yeah. and that he can find a way of, of uniting the two different movements and then potentially you know, bringing in lots of these reformist Catholics as well. Um, and he goes some way towards it, he takes what had become a very vociferous reformed movement that, you know, especially after Zwingli's death, is splitting off into a lot of lot of different um, a, a, a lot of different angles, and manages to hold it together um, and bring in some of the more kind of wild-eyed Zwinglian radicals and form what he thinks could be a kind of a, a consensual reformist center around which a, a, a united Protestantism can form. And he really seems to think that he can get the Lutherans on board with this as well, but it's, it's, it's not going to happen. Um, and so I mean, that, that's the, the last really serious attempt that Calvin makes to, 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 to unite at least the Protestant world around a, 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 a single banner. In some ways he gets a surprisingly long way, um, and which is why we do have something that you could call Calvinism. He takes this disparate, quarrelsome set of, of groups arising out of that Swiss South German milieu and melds them into a, a, a single force, which then in the 1550s and 60s starts winning support right across the continent. And you see this so-called second reformation movement of people who are kind of broadly Calvinist um, taking power or achieving significant steps in in Scotland, in the Netherlands, in France, um, in Transylvania, um, a whole a whole series of these movements crop, cropping up elsewhere, England indeed, although England is a slightly special case. Right. Um, but by that stage, it's clear that the the Calvinists and the Lutherans um, regard each other with, well, on the Lutheran side, real contempt um, and also wariness. On the Calvinist side, a certain wistful, yes, surely we recognize that we could all be, be together here, but also, um, you know, a, 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 a willingness to dismiss the, you know, what the Lutherans thought were serious issues. So it's it's not going to happen. So at, at this point, um, we've had a, a load of really good questions um, come in. I should have said at the start for people in the chat that today um, we are going to be stopping at the hour. So we're not going to have time to take loads of questions. But I guess what we... I, we could take a couple now if um if you want to do that and then yeah um if you want to we can kind of continue the story of protestantism at a point in future and maybe take people through the the history in a few sessions or something because it's, yeah, it's such well, a big yeah. topic it's very difficult to it, it, do it. it is a big topic and I'll, I'll i'll keep on talking about this stuff till the last person turns out the lights and leaves the room so well definitely like i definitely have questions about um you know the the English Reformation, but again, that you know that's a bit uh, a massive field in and of itself. Um, the Scot mm. the Scottish Reformation, and then um, further questions about the the types of things you start talking about in your book. I guess I mean, I mean how Protestantism develops through the the Enlightenment, the French Revolution, the discovery of mm. America, um, the Counter Reformation, how that affects things. Um, yeah. you, you know the. the ideas of nationalism like you say all the things that start happening in in america that you mentioned in the book with various different different movements um ways of doing systematic theology there's so many different and interesting topics to talk about and i think um I, I mean i've got a lot of americans who watch um some I, I mean at least a couple of people i know who are ex-mennonites so that's an interesting story but politically you know all, all the stuff going on in america politically right now with um evangelicals and Trump, I, th I think that that can 
I, I think that understanding the history behind that story can be really important for um, people as well as they come to engage with religion and figure out what's going on. But um, maybe maybe for now, if we if we just go with some of the questions from the chat. So Eric Johnson, who did say, who said earlier, actually, he said, thank you, because you'd helped him out with his master's that he was doing as well. Yeah, he said his <laughs> master's was on Puritan theology, and uh, he learned more from Dr. Ryrie than in seminary. So great guest. And his question was, uh, how did you find so many Puritan quotes about doubt cited in your book, Unbelievers? Um, uh, 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 thanks for the question, Eric. I'm afraid the uh, it's, it's kind of a boring answer, which is just that I read a whole lot of Puritans. Um, I, um, in particular, when I was writing the previous book about that, which was about um, pious practice and passage of prayer and so forth in the Church of England um, and 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 in the, and the Scottish Church in the late 16th, early 17th century, I was reading a whole lot of um puritan autobiographies and diaries you know people trying to describe their own inner spiritual experience and i was just struck by the the number of them who were talking about doubt profound doubt atheism doubting whether there is a god they talk about it in, in terms as explicit as that um and i started keeping track of these things because i thought hang on a second this is not what i expect to find in this sort of literature there might be there might be something going on here um and then once but once you start pulling at a thread then you know you, you you find out how much of it there is and you, you begin to to follow your nose and come up with with other examples of it um if it looks like i found a lot one reason i was able to do it is because there's actually quite a lot out there um you know i i I was not scraping the barrel in in that book. It's a it's it's a story about which more more could be said. Awesome. So another um, question that came in from Mind Onion, who asks, how did it become culturally acceptable to try and question church hierarchy, uh, who presumably would be ex uh, be considered experts with long traditions? That's a that's a great question because I think this goes right to the heart of what what Protestantism is, and I mean, absolutely bears on some of the kind of culture war issues that, that you were alluding to just now. Um, this is right at the heart of the, of the Protestant movement. When Luther first comes up with his, his protest, he is questioning the hierarchy. Now, as a, as a professor of theology, to some extent, he's licensed to do that. That's kind of his role. You know, he's part of the hierarchy himself, and he has has this position. But he is then authoritatively told that he's wrong and that he should shut up, um, and refuses to do so. And you know, the the key moment that Nathan mentioned earlier of of his career, the most kind of vivid public confrontation of of of, of Luther's life, a moment that both he and his supporters keep going back to, is this great confrontation at the Diet of Worms, the, 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 the parliament of the German Empire um, in April 1521, when he is summoned before all the princes and bishops of Germany to account for his defiance of the, of, 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 of the church. And he goes at least half expecting that he's going to be killed. Mm -hmm. um, that he's going to be arrested and put to death as a heretic. Um, he has been given a promise that that won't happen, but he's well aware that such promises have been broken before. Um, and the idea that he might face a martyr's death is, you know, has its appeal to him. He's clearly very scared as well. But I think that sense that he's putting his life on the line is, is important to understand the way that, that, that he responds. He's already decided to go and risk his life. So in that sense, he really has nothing to lose. Um, and so when he is asked, he's given the, the formally given the opportunity to, to, to walk back his statements, to recant his heresy. And he famously says, I cannot do so because my conscience is captive to the word of God. And it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Um, and so it's that 
appeal above the hierarchy and the experts, you know, the, the, the arrayed theologians and bishops who are facing him, he's saying, no, it's not just that I think I'm right and you're wrong, but my reading of the highest authority of all of scripture trumps anything that you folks say. And so he, he, is, he is appealing to a higher authority that goes, goes above any of them. But that means that he, as a you know, relatively lowly individual within this, is bypassing the chain of command. You know, he's going directly to God and right. saying that he, he is taking his authority from the word of God, from scripture. And if the bishops, the theologians are saying to him, but that's not what scripture says. That's not what it means. He's saying, no, my conscience tells me that it does. Mm and that the meaning of it is is clear and that instinct that refusal to take what you're told on authority has been an absolutely persistent feature of of protestant thought and i think of, of western thought more widely since then and you know in, in you know nowadays we're, we're you know we're all very fussed about you know, Rightly so about misinformation and conspiracy theories and so and anti-vaxxing and and, and and whatever get your vaccines, folks. Um, I, that instinct to say no, I'm going to I'm 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 going to reject expertise and say I, as a private individual, can work things out for myself and I know better than 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 the experts. That from where we are right now in 2021 looks like uh, a a, you know, a, a dangerous, sometimes deluded position. But I think we need to recognize how important and powerful it is that that willingness to refuse to take authoritative judgments simply because they are pronounced in a booming voice, um, to, to refuse to accept authority because it says so, but to insist that everybody enters the the, the you know the, the the sphere of argument on equal terms, um, and that even a a, a a relatively lowly individual, Luther is also keen to emphasise his status as a doctor of theology and so forth. But there are others who come come beyond him who have no status of any kind who are claiming the same privileges, are saying. You know, nobody other than God can tell me what to think, and it's possible for me to appeal beyond those, um, you know, any any of the human authorities I look at. Which means that if a human authority wants somebody to listen to them, they've actually got to persuade rather than than rather than laying down the law. Um, and although the persuading thing is sometimes kind of tedious, uh, I tend to think that. You know, I would I would rather have um, you know li live in a world which has people who are a little too ready to be skeptical than people who are a little too ready to be credulous. So, so there's um, a story about um, Cardinal John Henry Newman when he went to over to the Pope um, to see the Pope mm -hmm. and uh, sat down at dinner and he said something like. Um, you know, to raise a toast to conscience, who's Christ's first vicar on earth, um, and then to the Pope second or something like that. Um, I, how, how would that kind of sentiment have been received in Luther's time? Would that sentiment have been sort of viewed as, uh, I don't know, anathema in some sense, or would it have been viewed as by, by Orthodox Catholics, not that they're, you know, not that they're thinking in those terms of being Roman Catholics, um, would that have been viewed as a, an acceptable sort of theological position? If it would depend on the circumstances in which you said it. I mean, that okay. if, if that's framed explicitly um, as a as a kick at the Pope's shin, right. then you know that's that's going to cause you trouble, you know, no, no, no matter what. Um, but Yeah, that broad. I mean, that, that obviously anybody on the Protestant side is going to. Um, well, well, they are going to have a problem with that because they're going to dislike the presence of the, the Pope. Pope in your hierarchy. Yeah. Um, but, but 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 
you know, valorizing conscience in that sense. Ab absolutely. But for an awful lot of those who remain within the Catholic fold as well, that kind of approach would seem unexceptionable or self-evidently true. Um, I mean, we need to remember that the the papacy in the Renaissance era, the era of the you know the Borgias and the Medici's, is not self-evidently a kind of moral lamp to the world. Um, it looks like part of the problem rather than part of the solution. Um, and for a lot of the most serious reforming Catholics of the first half of the middle of the 16th century, their faith in what the papacy as an institution is or should be has to be held to some extent in defiance of the observed behavior of the individuals who actually hold that office. Right. Um, you know, one of the one of the really remarkable changes that that comes about during the 16th century as a as, as a result of the movement which you know, we can call the Counter Reformation. Again, the terms problem um, is a a renewal of the kind of moral seriousness and moral authority of the papacy from the kind of 1560s onwards, um, in, in which rather unexpectedly, it turns out to be able to rise to the challenge of reforming the church internally um, and, and, and pushing back against um, this, against the Protestant threat. Um, if it had been able to do that a century or so earlier, then then things might have been different. Yes, I can. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> um, so there were there are are a few more more questions from the audience, but ju just um, due to time, I've got one last question then before we wrap sure. up for today, and um, maybe ten minutes or just under ten minutes isn't enough to do it justice. But it would be how for you be, being part of the the one true church the church of england um, as a lay preacher um, <laughs> how um how has sort of studying the history of the reformation um and the various i, I mean presumably there's a lot of, a lot of people with ideas you disagree with as well within within the reformation movement how how has that shaped your personal understanding of what it is to be a protestant um uh, and why, why you're a Protestant? How how is studying the history kind of um, interacting and ch shaped that um, those beliefs that you have? That's a, a a good and deep question, which I probably can't give an adequate answer to. Let me give it a shot. I mean, I I identify as a as a Protestant Christian because I think. You know, broadly speaking, the nature of the kinds of critiques that are, are being made within that broad Protestant movement seem to me compelling. Um, and so, while I recognise the, the the importance of of the historic church, which you know, in in, in a Western context, has to mean the Church of Rome, I don't find myself able to be a to be a part of it um and living in england then you you I, I think you then find yourself in the the church of england by default um i've still got pr plenty of problems with the church of england um which i would like to think of as the church of england as a kind of uh, a, a, an open inclusive plural place for english christians who are willing to to, to work together um, too often it becomes instead the anglican church a denomination um, with strict rules which often seem to be based more around um, who can be excluded than who can be included um, mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I'm I'm very happy to identify myself as a as a minister of the Church of England. I dislike calling myself an Anglican, although sometimes for for, for, for clarity the, 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 the term's unavoidable. Um, it seems to me that one of the 
consistent patterns of the history of the Church of England um, is of its expulsion and exclusion of people who should not be treated that way. Um, the the Puritans are are talked about as if they don't really belong, um, as if they were only ever cuckoos in the nest. There's then the you know the throwing out of of um, uh, a great many um, English Christians from the church after the Restoration of 1662. There's the expulsion of the Methodists, um, and you know other other points of of exclusion which seemed to me to be a a shameful right. history and the more i i've studied that the the more uneasy about some of the denominational um baggage that the, the church of england has chosen to collect around itself um mm. I've, 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 I've i've become um one feature of that is its relationship with the Anglican Communion, where there are obviously kind of you know deep and historic connections there which which are, are, are important and need to be honored. I think we also need to recognize that the Church of England is the most anomalous church in the Anglican Communion. Um, it's it's unlike any of the others. It's yeah. an established church. It has this you know, not entirely unrealistic aspiration to be the church of the entire nation. It's an aspiration which it has, has repeatedly failed to live up to, but nevertheless, it's a, it is a serious and I think in its own terms a worthwhile um, aspiration. It does mean that I think we pay, you know, we as in the Church of England, we pay a lot of attention to nurturing our relationships with other Anglican churches around the world mm -hmm. and not very much attention to nurturing our relationships with other Christian churches in this country. And that priority seems to me a little perverse. Right. Yeah, no, that's, that's an, an interesting answer. Um, I think if you're happy to do a few more of these where we can we can kind of like follow on chronologically sort of from where we got to today with the story because i definitely have um more more questions as well off the back of the history about what it means you know to you as a protestant today so so i think um the you know like um the chapters on slavery in the book where you talk about um people arguing say from scripture like in favor of slavery and then people arguing well it's just you know like an obvious moral intuition that as a christian mm. i'm against slavery um and how you know how looking at those kind of debates and discussions then informs well then as a modern christian how do you then you know look at historically how people have done this and come to deal with things like that so i'm really interested in in all those sorts of questions and what your answers to them would be but yeah i want to respect the time for today so we can we'll, we'll leave it there um is there anywhere so so the, aside from the gresham college stuff which we said at the start is there anywhere else where people can um go to get in touch with you or see more of what you do um no I mean, aggression would be the would 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 be the obvious place um and you know there's a bunch of books out there yeah and uh this is one of them the one i'm, I'm broadly working through so i've been really enjoyed reading this on my holiday last week a bit um and i'm not finishing it this week hopefully um so yeah, thanks everyone for watching. Um, I'll play just the ending credits and if you wanna hang around after you can, um, it'll just be, you know, what, 20 seconds or so. But yeah, thanks everyone. If you enjoyed this, be sure to share it around with someone who you think will enjoy it and leave a comment letting me know what you think. Bye. Thanks very much, Nathan.